Today, there are drive-through windows at fast food restaurants. There are drive-through windows at pharmacies. There are drive-through windows at laundromats. But now, there is a drive-through window at a funeral home. The Adams Funeral Home in Compton, California, has installed a drive-through window. Mourners no longer have to get out of their cars and enter the building. They can just pay their respects by driving up and passing across the window. Melancholy music plays on the outside speakers. You know, I've heard these drive-through windows at mortuaries have become so popular, people are just dying to try it. Well, in a sense, this is what we have in the book of Lamentations. The nation Judah is in the casket. Jeremiah is the funeral director. And you and I, we're driving by. All the while we're watching Judah lie in state, we're listening to this mournful dirge. Jeremiah's lamentation. The Babylonians have invaded the land. They've ravaged the city of Jerusalem. They've burned the temple to the ground. They've shackled the Jews, and now they're hauling them off to Babylon. And Jeremiah is sitting in his grotto in a little cave on a hill north of Jerusalem, just above the road leading from Jerusalem back to Babel. And there, Jeremiah, he's crying bitter tears as he watches his beloved people pass by in chains, being led off to a foreign land into exile. Now remember, chapters 1, 2, and 4 of Lamentations are acrostics. Each chapter consists of 22 verses. Each verse begins with the next letter in the Hebrew alphabet. Chapter 3, though, is also an acrostic, but it's a triple acrostic. Every three verses begin with a succeeding letter in the Hebrew alphabet, and that's where we'll start tonight in Lamentations chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. I am the man who has seen affliction by the rod of his wrath. Now chapter 3 is the most intimate of Jeremiah's five poems. In fact, at times it's hard to tell if he's speaking personally or if he's speaking on behalf of his suffering people. Understand, Jeremiah is not an indifferent, aloof kind of person. He's not some hard-hearted moralist, quick to cast judgment. He's not a critic detached from those that he is criticizing. Jeremiah shares the plight of his people. This prophet has known for many years now that the nation's judgment was written in stone. The Jews were headed toward a terrible, inevitable destruction. He had encouraged the people to surrender. To resist the Babylonians, he said, was to fight against the hand of God. And yet Jeremiah didn't thunder these warnings in a condescending way. Oh no. He was one of the people until the bitter end. Jeremiah was the captain willing to go down with the ship. The tears that rolled down his cheeks were far more than crocodile tears. They bubbled up from his heart. The nation's sufferings were his sufferings. And so he writes, He, that is God, has led me and made me walk in darkness and not in light. Surely he has turned his hand against me time and time again Throughout the day, it seemed to Jeremiah as if God had picked a team and refused to choose him. That's how he felt. 
It was as if God had led him down a dark alley, then just left him hanging, abandoned, rejected. Of course, how we feel isn't always how things are. Did you know that? How we feel isn't always how things are. God had not forsaken Jeremiah. In chapter 1, we're told that God had chosen Jeremiah before he was even born. And God had remained faithful to him all his life long. But here in Jeremiah, his heart is speaking. Realize it's not God speaking. It's really not even Jeremiah speaking. It's his pain speaking. And my friends, when pain speaks, it says crazy things. In his commentary on Job, Pain's Hidden Purpose, author Don Baker, he writes this about pain. Pain speaks a strange language. It plays funny tricks on us. It makes us think things and say things and even believe things that are not true. When pain begins to bore its way through human flesh and into the human spirit and then just sits there and hurts and hurts, the mind becomes clouded and the brain begins to think strange thoughts like God is dead or he's gone fishing or he just doesn't care. And pain was having this kind of an effect on Jeremiah. His pain was attacking his faith. Reminds me of the little country church where the members gathered for what was called a testimony meeting. It was a time when everyone would share what God was doing in their lives. Well, one of the church members that night was Uncle Ephraim. Old Uncle Ephraim, his body was bent over. It was crippled with arthritis. The old boy could barely move. In fact, he was the only person that night who didn't stand up to share testimony. And so the pastor decided to call on him. Brother Ephraim, suppose you tell us what the Lord has done for you. The old geezer stood up on his wobbly knees and he said, Pastor, he's might near ruined me. And this is the problem with pain. Rather than realize that this sinful, fallen world is our fault, man's fault, pain blames our troubles on God. And that only exacerbates our problems. You see, Judah's suffering was a direct result of their own sin. They just didn't see it. They weren't willing to admit it. And yet Jeremiah's pain continues to speak in verse 4. He has aged my flesh and my skin, and he's broken my bones. Jeremiah's ministry had been a difficult one. For 40 years he had tried to shepherd a rebellious people. His life had been filled with conflict and combat, jail time, dungeons, beatings. Remember, he was tortured in the stocks. And he had endured it all until it had worn him down. His skin was weathered and scarred. His broken bones had never been set properly, which caused him to heal crookedly. This made his body disjointed. I'm sure he had back problems, probably walked with a limp. Jeremiah probably looked 20 years older than his actual age. And so he accuses God in verse 5. He has besieged me and surrounded me with bitterness and woe. He has set me in dark places like the dead of long ago. He has hedged me in so that I cannot get out. He has made my chain heavy. He felt as if God was his enemy. Have you ever felt that way? As if... God were at least not on your side. You recall in chapter 20, Jeremiah had tried to resign, 
But he couldn't even resign. He couldn't even turn in his resignation. He said, Then I said, I will not make mention of him, nor speak any more in his name. But his word was in my heart, like a burning fire shut up in my bones. I was weary of holding it back, and I could not. God had him, him, Jeremiah, in. He'd given him a passion for God's word and God's people that he could never shake. You see, Jeremiah got tired in serving the Lord, but he never got tired of serving the Lord. And there's a difference. He did feel hedged in by external circumstances, but in reality, he was wedged in by a love for God and by a passion to serve. Again, though, Jeremiah's pain talks in verse 8. He says, even when I cry and shout, he shuts out my prayer. What a very human verse. Have you ever felt this way? Have you ever prayed but wondered if God was listening? You wondered if there was anyone else on the other end of the line? He has blocked my past with hewn stone. He has made my past crooked. He has been to me a bear lying in wait like a lion in ambush. He has turned aside my ways and torn me in pieces. He has made me desolate. He has bent his bow and set me up as a target for the arrow. Hey, have you ever felt like that life was target practice and that you were the target? Have you ever felt that way? He has caused the arrows of his quiver to pierce my loins. That's not a good picture. I have become the ridicule of all my people. Their taunting song all the day. He has filled me with bitterness. He has made me drink wormwood or bitterness. You know, people who view Christian ministry as a rewarding career, beware. It wasn't very affirming for Jeremiah. Ministry for this prophet was a bitter experience. He had become the whipping boy for those folks who rebelled and defied God. For 40 years, the Jews demonstrated their rebellion against God by turning on his prophet Jeremiah. And you see, this is the price that a servant of God sometimes has to pay. Don't be surprised when it happens to you. 2 Timothy 3 verse 12 tells us, Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Don't think you're an exception. Verse 16, He has also broken my teeth with gravel, And covered me with ashes. Imagine eating dinner with a mouthful of gravel. That's not good. Jeremiah suffered greatly. You have moved my soul far from peace. I have forgotten prosperity. Jeremiah's life had been so full of pain for so long that he didn't even recall what it was like to prosper. He didn't remember what prosperity was like. And I said my strength and my hope have perished from the Lord Remember my affliction and roaming, the wormwood that is the bitterness and the gall. My soul still remembers and sinks within me. You see, even though God had not forsaken Jeremiah, it's obvious that the prophet felt as if he had. Remember, what we feel is not always what is. Feelings can betray us as they were doing to Jeremiah. It's obvious that this prophet felt as if God had forsaken him. Jeremiah was pretty depressed over the state of his people, even over his own sufferings. But something flips, a switch flips in his mind, in his heart, beginning in verse 21. 
He says, this I recall to my mind. Therefore, I have hope. Suddenly, God penetrates his darkness with a ray of hope. And God has a way of doing that in our lives. When we're down for the count, when we're in darkness, when darkness has engulfed us, when a light from God is the furthest thing from our minds, suddenly, out of nowhere, God is able to penetrate our darkness and he's able to shine a light into our hearts. I can't tell you how many times this has happened to me. Where God just came in, a fresh breath, a wind, a mighty rushing wind of the Holy Spirit just kind of swept in and put fresh wind in my sails. Gave me a new perspective. God is able to do that. And here's the shining thought that breaks through. Verse 22. Through the Lord's mercies we are not consumed because His compassions fail not. You see, it dawns on Jeremiah that it could have been worse. God would have been justified in wiping out the Jews, damning them to the pit of hell. If I spent some time enumerating their sins, you'd probably agree. But that was not the fate that God had assigned to His people. God had had mercy. His rebellious people were not consumed. God was overseeing the nation's survival. You know, often we mourn over our difficulties rather than rejoice over the troubles that we've escaped. We like to lick our wounds, but think of all that God has spared us. Even though God's judgment is needed at times, it's always tempered with mercy. Thank God for His mercy. And Jeremiah says of God's mercy, They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. It amazes me. God is such an extravagant lover. He can't even judge us without also reminding us of how much He cares about us and is deeply devoted to us. God may take us out to the woodshed for spanking from time to time, but hey, there comes another day. The sun will rise again. As the psalmist cries out, Psalm 30, verse 5, For His anger is but for a moment. His favor is for life. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. And I love verse 22, his compassions fail not. Hey, we fail. We fail often. We fall short, but God's compassions never fail. They sustain us and they hold us and they keep us going. It's always good to remember that famous quote by Teddy Roosevelt. He once said, success is never final and failure is never fatal. It's courage that counts. One defeat does not a season make. Hank Aaron hit 755 home runs. But I bet you didn't know he struck out 1,383 times. The guy we call the home run king struck out twice as many times as he hit a homer. Hey, we might fail, but God's love never fails. Despite our sin and failure, despite being deserving of judgment... Great is God's faithfulness. God keeps yearning for us and reaching out to us. At times we might quit on God, but He refuses to quit on us. Until your dying breath, my friend, God will never give up on you. And notice God's mercies. They are new every morning. God's compassions are always fresh and innovative and allocated daily. See, He relates to us as a stream of creativity. Notice God doesn't just dump a reservoir of blessing into your life. He doesn't just, boom, there's the, 
There it is. There's all of my grace all at once. No. Instead, He gives access to us. He allows us to come to the spigot. And He invites us to come daily to receive His grace. You see, receiving God's blessings is like collecting the manna. You remember the Old Testament? God gave out daily portions. You couldn't just go out and collect all you needed for the month. It wouldn't last that. It only lasted for the day. So every morning you had to keep coming back out and collecting that day's portions. This is the way it is with God's mercies. They're new every morning. But God only gives you that day's allocation. It keeps you coming back. It keeps you wanting more. And there is no one else like God. As much as you might enjoy being with someone, there comes a point when they become boring. Have you ever been sitting around with your your spouse, the person you love dearly, you love the most, and all of a sudden it's like, we got nothing else to talk about. It can happen. No one is interesting enough or stimulating enough to hold your attention forever except the Lord. Joseph Newton writes, Only God is permanently interesting. God is like a vintage wine. He keeps getting better with time. God blows us away day after day with how much He loves us and cares for us. It's interesting, Ephesians chapter 2 verse 7 tells us that one of God's chief concerns in heaven is to show us the riches of His grace and kindness. Apparently, it's going to take God all eternity for Him to reveal to us all the dimensions of His compassion toward us. I love this word translated compassions in verse 22. It's the Hebrew word rakam, which means to fondle or to caress, to love by touching. Implied is that God wants us to know His love, not just intellectually, but experientially. His Spirit can touch us in a myriad of new, wonderful ways, ways that we feel, ways that we know intuitively and spiritually. Have you let God caress you? Have you let Him warm your heart? Have you let Him, His Spirit wrap His arms around you? I think we need to stop and take some time and spend with God. He has great treasures for us, great experiences for us. We should stop floundering in our failure. And we need to focus on God's love. This is what Jeremiah does. Verse 24. He says, The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I hope in Him. The Lord is good to those who wait for Him, to the soul who seeks Him. You see, God was judging His people at the moment, but soon His painful work would be done. And God would return to bring healing. And that's why they needed to wait. You see, there are two dangers in the Christian life. First is sulking and sorrow when God is ready to do a new work. The second mistake, though, is just the opposite. At times, we can rush our repentance. Okay, I sinned yesterday, but now, Lord, I'm ready to be restored right now, right here. Doesn't work that way. You see, there are some lessons that are tied to our suffering, and sometimes they take time to unfold. You can't rush it. You've got to wait until the Lord decides to to move us to that next stage. In Jeremiah 25, verse 11, God predicted that Judah would serve the Babylonians for 70 years. You see, God had a new start planned for His people, but they needed to wait a while. There were some lessons to be learned first. He wasn't working according to their schedule. And He doesn't work according to ours. God has His own timetable. 
Before he begins his renovation, God first needs to finish his demolition. God does a new work in us, but first old strongholds have to come down. And repentance is the wrecking ball that God uses. But again, it takes time. We have to wait and be patient. And this is why Jeremiah says in verse 26, It is good that one should hope and wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. This is a good thing. Hey, waiting is a beautiful thing. Not a kicking and screaming, but just a a quiet waiting on God. That's a beautiful person. Jeremiah isn't talking about reluctantly, begrudgingly waiting on God, tearing and waiting on God only because you have no other choice. No, he's talking about a calm, reliant, restful, quiet waiting on God. And he also says, it is good for a man to bear the yoke in his youth. It's been said, the best time to solve a minor problem is before he grows up. And it's true that it's best to learn discipline and self-control early in life. Learn to wait on God when you're young and you'll avoid faults when you become older and more is at stake. Verse 28 tells us, Let him sit alone and keep silent because God has laid it on him. Jeremiah is saying, don't rescue a man who's being chastened by the Lord. There's times when you've got to leave him alone. Let him learn his lessons. Don't interfere with what God is doing in another person's life. Sometimes we do that. At times we rush to a friend's rescue prematurely. And we rob them of the lessons that they could have learned. There comes a time when you need to let him sit alone and keep silent. Because God has laid it on him. He's teaching him some things. And then he says in verse 29, Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes him and be full of reproach. Hey, when God spanks us, we should submit. God's discipline always has a reason attached. It's best to roll with it and learn what he's trying to teach us. He says, For the Lord will not cast off forever, though he causes grief. Yet he will show compassion according to the multitude of his mercies, for he does not afflict willingly, that is, for no reason, nor grieve the children of men. Hey, God isn't some sadist. He takes no pleasure in grieving his kids. He won't provoke without a purpose. And then Jeremiah adds, to crush under one's feet all the prisoners of the earth, to turn aside the justice due a man before the face of the Most High, or subvert a man in his cause, the Lord does not approve. He spanks us not to sink the ship, just to redirect our course. In other words, he spanks us to spare us. And then he says in verse 37, Who is he who speaks, and it comes to pass, when the Lord has not commanded it? In other words, God always has a final say. No one trumps the Lord. Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that woe and well-being proceed? Why should a living man complain, a man for the punishment of his sins? God is never wrong. His chastening is always just and right. And given what we deserve, we can't really complain. He says, let us search out and examine our ways and turn back to the Lord. Let us lift our hearts and hands to God in heaven. We have transgressed and rebelled. You have not pardoned. Of course, the Jews failed to give God a reason to pardon them. 
They failed to repent and confess their sin. God would have pardoned them at one point if they had simply bowed their knee to Him and confessed and repented of their sin. They never did. Or at least they did it until it was too late. Verse 43. You have covered yourself with anger and pursued us. You have slain and not pitied. You have covered yourself with a cloud that prayer should not pass through. You have made us an offscoring and a refuse in the midst of, this, of the peoples. All our enemies have opened their mouths against us. Fear and a snare have come upon us. Desolation and destruction. And Jeremiah responds to all this. My eyes overflow with rivers of water for the destruction of the daughter of my people. My eyes flow and do not cease without interruption till the Lord from heaven looks down and sees. My eyes bring suffering to my soul because of all the daughters of my city. In other words, the weeping prophet weeps. He weeps. He cries. There's nothing wrong with crying. Someone once called tears liquid prayers. And here Jesus, uh, here Jeremiah, he just lets it all hang out. Just sits down and has a good cry. His heart is heavy. It's been said, laugh and the world laughs with you. Weep and you weep alone. For this sad old earth must borrow its mirth, but it has trouble enough of its own. It is more popular to laugh than to weep. Even when sin abounds and trouble is on the horizon, people like to bury their head in the sand and laugh. Just party hardy. Pretend it doesn't exist. Jeremiah, though, was a realist. He saw the people's sins and he wept accordingly. With the dismal plight of our society, I think we all could be a little bit more like Jeremiah. Verse 52 tells us, My enemies without cause hunted me down like a bird. They silenced my life in the pit and threw stones at me. He's recalling his persecutions. We knew about the pit, but nowhere in the previous book of Jeremiah did we know that they stoned him. The waters flowed over my head. I said, I am cut off. I called on your name, O Lord, from the lowest pit. He almost drowned. You have heard my voice. Do not hide your ear from my sighing, from my cry for help. You drew near on the day I called on you and said, do not fear. Jeremiah holds himself up as an example to the nation. At his lowest point, he cried out to God for help. And God heard his cry. He drew near to him and calmed his fears. God didn't immediately take Jeremiah out of the pit, but he came to his side and he helped him endure. And if God did this for the prophet, he'll do it for the people. If Judah had cried out to God, he would have come to their aid. It'll be 70 years before he lifts them out of their pit and returns them to the land. But in Judah's captivity, God will come alongside her. He will remove her fears and he will help her endure. In fact, God always gives his people peace in the pit. If you're in a pit tonight, call upon the Lord. He'll be with you. O Lord, you have pleaded the case for my soul. You have redeemed my life. O Lord, you have seen how I am wronged. Judge my case. You have seen all their vengeance, all their schemes against me. You have heard their reproach, O Lord, all their schemes against me. The lips of my enemies and their whispering against me all the day. 
Look at their sitting down and their rising up. I am their taunting song. Again, Jeremiah brings up his enemies and how they've mistreated him, how they've mocked him. He says, repay them, O Lord, according to the work of their hands. Give them a veiled heart. Your curse be upon them. In your anger, pursue and destroy them from under the heavens of the Lord. Chapter 4. How the gold has become dim. How changed the fine gold. 2 Chronicles 22 verse 14 tells us that King Solomon used 100,000 talents of gold in the building of the Old Testament temple. That's a lot of gold. Conservatively speaking, with a talent weighing about 75 pounds, that amounts to 3,750 tons of gold. At today's prices, say $1,000 an ounce, that's $120 billion worth of gold. An amazing treasure. Movies are made about Solomon's gold. Of course, when the Babylonians burned the temple, they plundered this gold. What little remained looked tarnished and ashen. Thus he says, the gold was now dim. The stones of the sanctuary are scattered at the head of every street. You see, the stones of the temple were scattered. You could find a few of the stones at every street corner. You see, when the Babylonians burned the temple, much of the gold melted and it filled the crevices between the stones. That's why her soldiers, the Babylonian soldiers, moved the stones off of each other and scattered them abroad the city to retrieve the gold. And the plight of Jeremiah's gold was a metaphor for what happened to the people. He says, The precious sons of Zion, valuable as fine gold, how they are regarded as clay pots, the work of the hands of the potter. The Jews have been God's golden boy, but no longer. The golden vessels were now diminished into clay jars. And sin does this to us. It strips us of our dignity. It robs us of our self-worth. Sin cheapens us and degrades us. This is what it did to the Jews and to their city of Jerusalem. Now from verse 3 through chapter 4, the end of chapter 4, the prophet recalls the days of the siege leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem. You remember the Babylonians had cut off Jerusalem for 18 months. Chapters three through ten, or verses 3 through 10 describe the famine in the city. Verses 11 through 16 record the plight of the false prophets. And verses 17 to 22 recount the Jews of Jerusalem who looked for help that never came. You remember the other nations to whom they had trusted to deliver them. They let them down. J. Vernon McGee, he titles this section of Lamentations, When Tomorrows Become Yesterdays. When Tomorrows Become Yesterdays. It's sort of a flashback on the experience of the Hebrews while under siege. Verse 3. Even the jackals present their breasts to nurse their young. But the daughter of my people is cruel like ostriches in the wilderness. Did you know that ostriches, they lay their eggs in what's called a dump nest? It's a communal nest holding up to 60 eggs. And all but one of the ostriches go about their business while the one sits on all the eggs. Most ostriches, they lay their eggs and then they forget about them. 
And thus the reputation they have as heartless parents. And Judah was also heartless and cruel toward her young. Famine was so severe that the kids went hungry. Jeremiah tells us about it. The tongue of the infant clings to the roof of its mouth for thirst. The young children ask for bread, but no one breaks it for them. Those who ate delicacies are desolate in the streets. Those who are brought up in scarlet embrace ash heaps. In other words, the once privileged people, the upper crust, they're now homeless and hungry. This is what happened during a siege. The supply lines were cut off. Famine conditions existed. Situations became desperate. The punishment of the iniquity of the daughter of my people is greater than the punishment of the sin of Sodom, which was overthrown in a moment with no hand to help her. Judah's judgment was more severe than that of Sodom's. And here's why. Judah, Jerusalem, had been recipient of tremendous blessings and revelation. They knew far more about God than Sodom. And with privilege comes what? Responsibility. In Luke chapter 12, verse 48, Jesus teaches the same. For everyone to whom much is given, from him much will be required. And to whom much has been committed, of him they will ask the more. This was true of the Jews. This is why their judgment was considered even more severe. Verse 7, her Nazarites, the word actually means her princes or her nobles, were brighter than snow and whiter than milk. They were more ruddy in body than rubies, like sapphire in their appearance. In other words, the dignitaries, these were the privileged people, and normally their diet heightened their appearance. It kept their skin clearer and cleaner and healthier. But now their appearance is blacker than soot. They go unrecognized in the streets. Their skin clings to their bones. It has become as dry as wood. In other words, the nobles, the dignitaries of Jerusalem, they were now an ashen color. They were nothing but skin and bones. They had shriveled up. They were withering away. Again, the famine had taken its toll on everyone within the walls of the city. Those slain by the sword are better off than those who die of hunger. For these pine away, stricken for lack of the fruits of the field. He's saying it would have been better to die in battle, to be killed by the sword than to starve to death. A quick death is better than a long, drawn-out agony. The hands of the compassionate women have cooked their own children. They became food for them in the destruction of the daughter of my people. The siege made normally nurturing moms cook their own children. How terrible. I mean, it's hard for us to even imagine a situation that desperate. But desperate situations make for desperate people. The starvation became unbearable. The people of Jerusalem resorted to cannibalism in order to try to survive. And this certainly gives new meaning to the phrase, kids meal. I guess you could say they became Jake and Potatoes people. Hey, we need to lighten the mood just a little bit. You know, it's hard to, it's hard to teach on cannibalism. Matter of fact, how about a few cannibal jokes tonight? You up for it? You up for a few cannibal jokes tonight? Did you hear about the two cannibals? They were eating a clown at the same time. One said to the other, does this taste funny to you? 
What did the cannibal get when he was late coming home for dinner? The cold shoulder. What do cannibals do at weddings? They toast the bride. What does a cannibal call a sitcom star? A TV dinner? <laughs> Did you hear about the cannibal who had a wife and eight kids? Yeah. Which sort of brings us back to our text. Verse 11. The Lord has fulfilled His fury. He has poured out His fierce anger. He kindled a fire in Zion and it has devoured its foundations. The kings of the earth and all inhabitants of the world would not have believed that the adversary and the enemy could enter the gates of Jerusalem because of the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests who shed in her midst the blood of the just. The unthinkable had happened in Jerusalem because of her evil leaders. They wandered blind in the streets. They have defiled themselves with blood so that no one would touch their garments. They cried out to them, Go away unclean. Go away, go away. Do not touch us. When they fled and wandered, those among the nations said, They shall no longer dwell there. The face of the Lord scattered them. He no longer regards them. The people do not respect the priests, nor show favor to the elders. See, because of the terrible sins of the religious and civic leaders in Jerusalem, the leaders had lost the respect of the people and they had lost the favor of God. They had lost the respect of the people and they had lost the favor of God. And if that doesn't sound like the state of politics in America today, I don't know what does. Losing the respect of the people and the favor of God. Verse 17. Still our eyes failed us, watching vainly for our help. In our watching, we watched for a nation that could not save us. Rather than trust God, the Jews, they put their trust in Egypt. But the Egyptians never came. They never came to defend them against the Babylonians. They tracked our steps so that we could not walk in our streets. Our end was near. Our days were over, for our end had come. Our pursuers were swifter than the eagles of the heavens. They pursued us on the mountains and laid in wait for us in the wilderness. You remember back in chapter 52 of Jeremiah, once the walls were breached, King Zedekiah had tried to escape the city. He was captured in the Judean wilderness near Jericho. Here we're told that they pursued us on the mountains and laid in wait for us in the wilderness. Verse 20, the breath of our nostrils, the anointed of the Lord, was caught in their pits, of whom we said, under his shadow, we shall live among the nations. And here's really some vivid imagery. Judah was the anointed of the Lord. But rather than trust the Lord, her king ran from the Babylonians and to no avail. The breath of our nostrils was caught in their pits or their traps. Rejoice and be glad, O daughter of Edom, you who dwell in the land of Uz. You remember Job was from the land of Uz, an Edomite city. The cup shall also pass over to you and you shall become drunk and make yourself naked. You see, Edom had rejoiced over the demise of her arch rival, the Jews. How ironic. She would be next to face the Babylonian siege and invasion. Verse 22, the punishment of your iniquity is accomplished, O daughter of Zion. He will no longer send you into captivity. He will punish your iniquity, O daughter of Edom. He will uncover your sins. Judgment had ended for the Jews 
but it was just beginning for the Edomites. Now, chapter 5 is like chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4, or 1, 2, and 4, in that they contain 22 verses. It was like the four, previous four chapters in that it was... Um, the. <laughs> we start over. Chapter 5 was like chapters 1, 2, and 4, in that they contain 22 verses. But this is the only chapter that was not written as an acrostic. I wish I knew why, but I don't. We really have no idea. But it is a fitting end to Lamentations, for it's a prayer of repentance. He says, Remember, O Lord, what has come upon us. Look and behold our reproach. Our inheritance has been turned over to aliens and our houses to foreigners. We have become orphans and waifs. Our mothers are like widows. In other words, they become strays. Waif is a stray, either a stray person or a stray animal. Jeremiah, in essence, is saying the entire nation of Judah has become homeless. We're a homeless people now. We've been kicked out of our nation, our country. He says, we pay for the water we drink, and our wood comes at a price. This was their plight in Babylon. For a citizen of the land, water and wood were free. They were for the taking. Only a slave or a foreigner would be required to pay for water and wood. In Babylon, Judah had become a stranger in a strange land. They pursue at our heels. We labor and have no rest. We have given our hand to the Egyptians and to the Assyrians to be satisfied with bread. Again, these were the nations they thought would come to their rescue. They were wrong. They should have trusted in God. He says, Our fathers sinned and are no more, but we bear their iniquities. It's interesting, many Jews would be born in Babylon. Remember, they were there in captivity for seven decades. In essence, these Babylonian Jews would be suffering in exile outside their land because of their parents' sins. Verse 8, Servants rule over us. There is none to deliver us from their hand. The Jews in Babylon were the lowest rung on the social ladder. They were the servants of the servants. We get our bread at the risk of our lives because of the sword in the wilderness. Our skin is hot as an oven because of the fever of famine. You know, try to exist without the proper nutrients and it weakens your immune system. You become prone to disease. Infection becomes a side effect of famine conditions. And here's another atrocity the Jews suffered at the hands of the Babylonian invaders. It says, they ravished the women in Zion, the maidens in the cities of Judah. These marauding Babylonian troops, as they swept into the land, they raped the women. The wives and the daughters of Jerusalem were violated. He says, princes were hung by their hands, and elders were not respected. Young men ground at the millstones. Boys staggered under loads of wood. They were humiliated and tortured and brutally murdered. The elders have ceased gathering at the gate and young men from their music. The leaders of the city, they always met in the gate. The gate of the city was more or less the city hall of ancient times, but not so in a city under siege. It would, the gate would be vacated. And the young men, we're told, had ceased playing their music. Hey, the Jews are into music. They're a soulful people. They love their music. They love to dance and sing and play. But here he says the pop music of Jerusalem in Jeremiah's day had been replaced 
by a funeral dirge, by Jeremiah's lamentation. He says, the joy of our heart has ceased. Our dance has turned into mourning. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. Because of this, our heart is faint. Because of these things, our eyes grow dim. Because of Mount Zion, which is desolate, with foxes walking about on it. And here at the close of the book, we finally see a breakthrough. The first step in overcoming a problem is to admit that problem. It's confession. Here, finally, after so much has been lost, the Jews decide to confess their sin. Woe to us, for we have sinned, they say. They get honest for a change. See, it's only when we confess our sin for what it is and cease from our excuses. It's only when we put down a period that God can begin a new sentence. I hope you know that. It's only when you put a period on your past, say, God, I'm confessing it for what it is. I'm turning from it. I'm turning to you. It's only when you put down a period on your past that God is then free to begin a new sentence. Confession and repentance is 90% of the battle. Verse 19, You, O Lord, remain forever. Your throne from generation to generation. Why do you forget us forever and forsake us for so long a time? Turn us back to you, O Lord, and we will be restored. Renew our days as of old, unless you have utterly rejected us and are very angry with us. And of course, that was not the case. God would restore Judah, just as he had said. In fact, go back to Jeremiah chapter 31. There God made a new covenant with his people. He said, as sure as the sun rises in the morning and as the moon appears in the night, God will sustain Israel. God will never forsake his people Israel. It's interesting, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah tell the story of God's faithfulness to Judah, how he did bring them back. Just as there were three deportations of Jews to Babylon, three waves of Jews returned. In 535 B.C., Under Governor Zerubbabel, the Jews came back. In 458 B.C., led by Ezra the priest. And then in 444 B.C., they came with Nehemiah the wall builder. The next two books of the Bible that we'll be studying deal with the Jews who remained living in captivity after this deportation and for the 70-year exile. During those 70 years, Two Jews had a profound impact for God inside of Babylon. A civic leader named Daniel and a religious leader named Ezekiel. And next Wednesday, we'll begin the bizarre exploits and revelation of Ezekiel.